Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could please stand and we'll begin in prayer. For blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to be able to call upon Thee, O Heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. Forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Dr. Marshner. Come on up. Come on up here. I don't think I have to introduce Dr. Marshner to you tonight. Welcome. Okay, everybody, hello. Tonight is the first of a three-part series on the roots of modernism. Modernism was a complex movement that flourished between roughly 1899 and 1910. Okay? At the very end of the 19th century, it gets into high gear, the major modernists start publishing things. They included Alfred Loisy in France, George Tyrrell in England, and some other people. They were all brought together as by a ringmaster, as if they were performing ponies. They were brought together by a man of independent wealth and fortune named Baron Friedrich von Hügel. Although he had a German name uh, and uh, his, an Austrian mother, an Austrian father, I'm sorry, his mother was Scottish, and he grew up in England and was in a very fortunate position when the Arundels, very high aristocratic family in England, Lady Arundel became a Catholic. Well, she had to have a nobleman to marry her daughter, who was also now a Catholic. Well, how many Catholic noblemen do you think there are in England? Okay, I mean, once you've married the Duke of Norfolk, you've married the lot. So, <laughs> fortunately for young Freddie von Hugel, he had a title of nobility. It wasn't worth two nickels to rub together because it had been a Holy Roman Empire title. And that went kaput in about 1806. So it wasn't worth anything, but he got to marry Lady Arundel's daughter and thus became a man of independent means. And with all of his languages and so on, he could travel whenever he wanted on the European continent and put Tyrrell and Loisy and other important modernist thinkers into touch with one another. Okay, so he was the bankroller and the, uh, what do you call it, the go-between. Oh, thank you, liaison, there it is. <laughs> All right, so it gets started about 1899. Major modernist writings get published in 1901, 1902, 1903. And the crisis comes to a head by 1907 when uh, Pius X, puts out a series of condemned propositions called Lamentabili. The, that's the first word of it. The whole title is uh, 
Lamentable indeed is the result. Lamentable sane exitu. By the way, it came out on the 4th of July in 1907. And I recommend that you, uh, one of these days, devote a 4th of July party to celebrating it. Okay, there are some 70 propositions condemned in Lamentable. And it'd be just great. Send off a bottle rocket for each one of them. And then by 1910 comes the coup de grace, so to speak. The same pope put out his encyclical Pascendi. Modernists are pretty much excommunicated, one by every, every one, except those who go in hiding. They're excommunicated, and um, their movement is on hard times until the Great War. The Great War of 1914 to 1918. That did not improve their fortunes. No, 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 that killed them off. Because one of the roots of modernism was Victorian and Edwardian optimism. Okay? To be a modernist, you had to believe that we men of the, the new century, the 20th century, having gone through all the refinements and discoveries and progress of the 19th century, are just vastly superior to the people of any prior generation. Just vastly superior. Not only superior to the medievals, for heaven's sake, but superior also to the ancients, and certainly superior to Palestinian fishermen. And so their primitive ideas need to be deeply revised with the help of our expertise. Okay? You had to believe that mankind had substantially progressed. The old-time religion wasn't good enough for people of the modern age. Well, World War I put a terrible dent into the egos of the people of the modern age. It had been thought, by the way, in the 1890s that war was extinct. No war would ever be fought again. The Tsar of Russia led a major disarmament movement throughout Europe. No, war is obsolete. We're beyond that. We've evolved, you know. Then comes 1914 and all of the abominable savagery of that war, okay? And the illusions of vast and serious progress are destroyed. And by the time that war is over, people are ready for old-time religion again. So that was the death knell of modernism. But I'm not here to talk about its death knell nor about its brief floroit from 1899 to 1910, but about its roots. Where did it come from? I don't suppose I need to tell you in this audience that we're interested in this because modernism was revived after World War II, and especially revived after the Second Vatican Council. The dissenters in the church since Vatican II have repeated one or another slogan of the modernists without embarrassment. So this is all relevant stuff. So now I go back to my topic. Where did it all come from? I said it was complicated. It's got multiple roots. Let me start with the first and most obvious root. I'm going to go back to the year 1762. That's a heck of a long way back. But that was the year in which Jean-Jacques Rousseau, French philosopher, wrote his famous book, Emile, subtitle, Or on Education. It was a famous book because it was the first charter of progressive education. Rousseau imagines an ideal education in which this 
this pupil, this kid, Emil, never has to do anything he doesn't want to do. Okay? Everything is going to be happy, happy, happy. And Emil is just going to be fulfilled and delighted. And learning is going to be such fun. Right. Well, the main aspect of the book, the invention of progressive education, doesn't interest us. What interests us in this book is a little section called the Creed of the Savoyard Vicar. Savoyard is the adjective from Savoy, a province in the south of France. You know that people who play uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas are called Savoyards because Gilbert and Sullivan's drama, musicals, were put on in the Savoyard Theatre. In the Savoy Theatre, actually. The Savoy Theatre in London. Well, anyway, if you're from Savoy, you're called a Savoyard. And Rousseau wrote this section about a priest in Savoy. This priest does not believe a single dogma distinctive of the Catholic Church. No. His own religion is stripped down to the bare essentials. There's a wise God, you have a soul, there are morals to be kept, there are duties to be kept. He's basically a deist. The way Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Okay? He believes in God, he doesn't believe in Christ, he doesn't believe in the atonement, he doesn't believe in the Trinity. Okay, when he talks about providence, he doesn't mean the God we worship. So it's a deist type of theology. But he remains a Roman Catholic priest. Now this guy is a kind of a hero to Rousseau. Why? Rousseau wasn't even a Catholic by family background. He was a Swiss Protestant. But by Rousseau's time, the Protestant clergy had fallen into a lot of disrepute, whereas the prestige of the Catholic priest was high. Their obvious sacrifice, the poverty they underwent, the deprivations, the chastity, and so on, made them figures of admiration. So Rousseau appreciates that. He makes his theological hero a Catholic priest. Now then, if I say that this guy's theology was deistical, ah, you would think that he would be like all of those deists in 18th century America. What would Thomas Jefferson have thought about the sort of worship we do in a Catholic church? Superstition galore. All this high muckety-muck and all of this fancy symbolism and oh, 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 give me plain plywood simplicity. Okay? That's the Jeffersonian attitude. That was the traditional deist attitude. But the Savoyard vicar represents something brand new, deism turned sentimental. It's no longer against symbolism. Rather, the deist priest remains at his post dispensing the Catholic ceremonies with mystic sentimental devotion. Notice then, here you have for the first time in Western culture a new attitude towards symbolism. Okay? It's beautiful. Therefore it should be kept. You don't tear it all down and replace it with some, sign, some kind of cult of pure reason, the way the revolutionaries in Paris tried to do in the 1790s. No, no, no. You keep the symbols. They're beautiful. 
They're heartwarming. Okay? But along with that sentimental turn and that new attitude towards symbols comes a new theory of what the church is all about. For the Savoyard vicar, the church exists not to teach a revealed truth, but to nourish the religious and moral impulses of the people, and thus to better them. Now, this is also something new. Go back into the 18th century and read those rationalistic characters who invented the French Revolution. Read Voltaire, uh, read Diderot, and so on. And you're going to find that religion is barely tolerated and pretty much despised. Okay? Religion is an old-fashioned sort of stance towards the world. It's all superstitious, and it has to be replaced by science. Well, Rousseau didn't think so. Rousseau thought that people's religious impulses were important to their character and well-being, and that the way to improve people was to nourish their religious impulses. Well, that sounds pretty much like what we believe, but we think that people's religious impulses are best nourished with revealed truth, don't we? And Rousseau thought, no, 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 no. People's religious impulses are best nourished by symbolism and ceremony. Mm -hmm. So we're going to keep the symbols, we're going to keep the ceremonies, we're going to keep the candles, pardon me, we're going to keep the incense, but we're going to downplay dogma. Because okay? everything is going to be about making people morally better by nourishing their religious impulses and emotions. Rousseau is a pioneer of the idea that will become a central theme in the 19th century. The idea is religion is good, theology is bad. Hmm? We say they're both good. I don't know what good religion would be if our theology were all nonsense. I can't separate those two things, but Rousseau could. Religion, good, good. Theology, all oh, bad, scholastic, dry. Okay? So he's in favor of religion, he's against theology. And what you need to reflect upon is the fact that the instant success of this book, Emile, and the many reprints of this little section on the Savoyard Vicar showed that already in 1762, Rousseau had put his finger on a gathering consensus. When we talk about 19th century thought, you do not begin in the year 1800. The thought of the time didn't exactly coincide with its chronological boundaries. You go back to the 1760s, 70s, 80s. There you begin to have this turn towards the emotional, the sentimental, being fed up with pure reason, romanticism, Sturm und Drang, all that good stuff starts to come in. And the 19th century didn't end in 1900. The thought involved in the 19th century continued on well into the 20th. Okay? But it's a distinctive period. And Rousseau has given us one of the tenets of that period. In this vein of 
Religion, yes. Theology, no. I want to read to you a production from the year 1899 by a French modernist named Marcel Hébert. Marcel H-E-B-E-R-T. That's the acute accent on that E. Marcel Hébert. He was a high school teacher. He was, uh, well, not just any high school, a very expensive Parisian prep school. So he had the teenage kids of the upper classes under his tutelage. Uh, he was a priest of the Archdiocese of Paris and obviously was trusted by the hierarchy because you, you, you don't put a bad priest in charge of the spiritual formation of tomorrow's Catholic leaders, do you? <laughs> you do well to snicker. I know it isn't that way in our time and in our country. This is so weird. All right. For some reason, going back into the 1950s, the standard policy of American bishops was to take any bad news, troublemaking priest and shove him into a college chapel. Keep the bad guy away from the parish. Because the parish was an investment. Lots of bricks, lots of mortar, lots of parking lot space. You didn't want to cut up running the parish. Shove him off to a university chapel. Well, let's just put it this way. The French bishops of the 19th century were smarter than that. You didn't turn over your university-bound students to dissenting priests. Well, little did they know, but Marcel Hébert was a deeply dissenting priest. And um, in the year 1899, he um, circulated privately a document called his Creed. Now, notice, in keeping with tradition and so on, he has a creed. He doesn't say, away with creeds, give me science. No, no, no. We have to have a creed. But listen to what this creed says. I believe in the objective value of the idea of God. How do you like that? Never mind, I believe in God. <laughs> I believe in the objective value of the idea of God. The idea of an absolute ideal, perfect, distinct, without thereby being separated from the world, which he draws and directs towards what is best. He's the principle of all physical and moral phenomena, the raison d'etre of human reason and conscience, one in threefold, for he can be called infinite activity, intelligence, and love. Bye-bye to any serious dogma of the Trinity. The talk of three persons in God becomes a symbol for talking about the fact that God is action, intelligence, and love. There you go. Article 2 of the Creed of Marcel Hébert. And I believe in him, capital H, in whom has been realized to an exceptional and unique degree the union of divine with human nature. Stop. Did it ever occur to you that the union of divine with human nature was a matter of degree? Could, uh, do you think you can have the hypostatic union by degrees? Okay. You either are united to the divine nature as a human being, or you're not. Well, no, for Marcel Hébert, all of a sudden it's a matter of degree.
It's a matter of how much divineness of light and love you have in you. Well, I believe in him who ha realized that union to an exceptional and unique degree, who was aware of this intimate union and expressed it by his words and deeds, so becoming our master and model, Jesus Christ. Dash. Whose dazzling superiority so impressed the hearts of the simple that it was for them symbolized by a supernatural conception in the womb of a creature who combines the two ideals of uh, glories of woman, maternity and virginity. Okay. He was just dazzling. Was that Jesus? He was so sweet and so good. He was just dazzling. And the result is that the simple uh, peasants, get it? Fishermen and peasants thought, oh, well, then he must have had some marvelous birth, yeah. Yeah, birth from some gal who combined the two ideal dignities of woman, virginity and maternity. So bye-bye to the virginal birth as anything historical. It's just a symbol. And um, attractive to the simple. Dash who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried. Hey, that's in the original creed. That's the only sentence he keeps. I go on. Dash, whose powerful action after death, persisting in this world in men's consciousness, determined in the minds of the apostles and disciples, the visions and apparitions that are recorded in the Gospels, and has been symbolized by the myth of a liberating descent into hell and an ascension towards the higher regions of heaven, represented in the naive imagination of the first believers as a glorious abode above the clouds where Jesus has gone up to sit at the right hand of the Father, whence he shall come to descend to judge the living and the dead. Okay? So, Jesus is a human being of dazzling superiority. Okay? We're all, we're all of us little unions of human and divine nature. Don't we all have our better angels? We have our, we have our better angels. We're all little unions of divine and human nature. And Jesus was just such a union like you couldn't believe. He was so good. And then people who were simple just took that to mean, oh, well, he must have had one heck of a mother. She, oh, she, oh. And, and, and then he must have been yeah, miraculously conceived. And goodness gracious. And then after death, notice where he acts. He doesn't act in the world. He acts in the consciousness of the faithful. Mm -hmm. In other words, he acts through his memory. Such a dazzling guy is not easily forgotten. His memory can titillate and fascinate to this very day. <laughs> And the primitive people of the time, of course, uh, symbolized all of this by uh, a descent into hell and then an ascension into some glorious abode above the clouds. Yeah, well, those of us who know some astronomy, we know there isn't any such place. Yeah. But it's all beautiful symbolism. Okay? I'm ready for Article 3. Are you? <laughs> I believe in the spirit of love. Ah. I believe in the spirit of love who vivifies our souls 
draws and impels us towards all that is true, beautiful, and good. Divine flame of charity, who alone can destroy the egotism of this world. So, the Holy Spirit is flat out identified with charity. Okay. If you are a loving person, you have a nice spirit of love in you. And that spirit of love will draw you towards everything true, beautiful, and good. Well, I can think of lots of things that are true, like theorems of trigonometry. Lots of things that are beautiful, like the poems of Homer. And lots of things that are good, like a well-done steak. Never mind. <laughs> I can think of lots of things that are true, beautiful, and good, and it never occurred to me that the Holy Spirit led me or impelled me towards all of them. Did you ever think that? Does the Holy Spirit enhance your art appreciation? Does he inspire you to study better physics? See, there's nothing supernatural left about the Holy Spirit in this description by Marcel Hébert. The Holy Spirit is just a symbolic way of talking about the love that each of us should have for everything that's good, true, and beautiful. That's it. Dash. I believe in the Holy Universal Church. Oh, that's good. <laughs> comma. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, comma, the visible expression of the ideal communion between all beings. The church is the visible expression of the ideal union between all beings? Okay. In other words, the church is an expression of my attitude if I'm a tree hugger? Huh? I, I, you know, I have an ideal communion with pretty green leafy trees? Is that what the church is all about? Uh, the ideal communion between all beings. You know, you have to be a little bit silly to talk about the ideal communion between all beings. I think the lion is a being. I think the lamb is a being. <laughs> the lamb doesn't particularly care for the lion's idea of ideal communion. <laughs> with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, the church is the visible expression of the unity which must gradually be realized by justice and charity. Ah. Let's say that the church is then the symbol not only of our solidarity with the environment and whatnot, but also of our happy society with one another. Okay? Well, don't we have a lot of people in the world who are working to make society better, fighting for justice? Yes, getting voting rights for the the oppressed and uh, unionizing rights for the, the uh, those who are thrown out of their jobs and blah, blah, blah. In other words, take every form of liberal social reform that you've ever heard of. Okay? Call it work for justice and make the church the symbol of that. So the church becomes a symbol of progressive politics. <laughs> Yes. Justice and charity. Well, sure, charity. Okay, I believe in the remission of sins for every soul that is penitent and of goodwill. Okay. I won't fight that. I believe in the survival, get this, 
of what constitutes our moral personality. Did you know that you had a moral personality? I believe in the survival of the whole person. It's called the resurrection of the dead. You know what I mean? A bear doesn't believe in that, but he doesn't. Want, he doesn't want to come flat out and say, "It ain't no resurrection. That's no fun." You gotta say, believe in the survival of what constitutes our moral personality. That sounds good, doesn't it? In other words, I'm going to get rid of my immoral personality. <laughs> no. What a moral anyway. It survives, he believes. In the eternal life that already exists in every soul who is living a life above the physical level. Oops. What he means by eternal life is already in everybody who uses his head or her head who lives you know, a life above the physical level. I mean, if all you do is get up in the morning, drink coffee, eat Wheaties, wait till lunch, ingest a burger, wait till supper, ingest a steak, and then go to bed, you're living on the physical level. But if in between those meals, you devote any time to thought about any higher subject or any charity towards anybody else, you got eternal life already. How do you like that? And this eternal life that already exists in every soul develops in conditions that transcend our present knowledge. Conditions that the popular imagination has symbolized by the resurrection of the flesh and eternal felicity. So once again, our belief in the resurrection is a, just a symbol drawn from popular imagination. And eternal blessedness in the beatific vision, that's just a symbol drawn from popular imagination. We don't really have any idea what happens to our moral personality after this life. I, I don't know either, because I don't even know what a moral personality is. <laughs> right. Does everybody see what kind of baffle gab this is? But clearly, he doesn't want to engage in flat-out dull negations. He wants to take the traditional language of the faith and make it symbolical. so that it's no longer falsified when I say there isn't really any heaven or there isn't really any hell or there isn't really any resurrection of the dead. In fact, if you wanted to put modernism into a nutshell, you could put it this way. You're going to keep every word of the creed exactly as it has always been sung and recited. But you're going to change all the meanings so that the meaning doesn't amount to any more than Marcel Hébert puts into this paper. You're still going to say credo in unum deum and you're going to be pressing your faith in the idea of God. Nice idea. Huh? I believe in him who was so dazzling superior. Yeah, 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 right. That's what it's all going to mean. Nothing but that. So you keep all the prose and throw out all the meaning. The result is that the faith is no longer falsifiable by what we traditionally think makes it false. Look, you, you remember 1 Corinthians 15 and thereabouts where St. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. He had some trouble in Corinth with people who weren't so sure that the resurrection of the body was a good idea. 
These were early Gnostics. They thought that the body was a major burden. You know, I got B.O. and hangnails and all kinds of stuff, and do I really want this flesh back? You know? And St. Paul gives them an apologetical argument about that. Okay? To begin with, we have the witness to the resurrection from the apostles. And look, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are still in our sins, and our faith is vain. And then he goes on and talks about how the resurrected body can have, let's say, fewer inconveniences than our present bodies. Glad to hear it. But meanwhile, the point is, if you don't believe in the resurrection, there is just no truth to Christianity, and the apostles are wasting their time. Isn't that the common sense of the matter? It's also the revealed doctrine of the matter. And here is a guy denying it. No. Christianity can still be true, even if there is no resurrection, no heaven, no hell. And we can still have a church, even if it's really just about building up a more just society and advancing liberal politics. Yeah. And we can keep all the ceremonies, but we're just going to change the meaning of it all. All right? Change the meaning of a sentence and you change its falsifiability conditions. And that's what modernism is all about, in a nutshell. All right? Now, uh, when we meet again, I want to come to closer grips with the main streams of 19th century thought. People think that, well, you got a kind of philosophical unity to some earlier periods. 13th century, it's all scholasticism, you know, and then it's all Descartes, and then it's all, I don't know what. But in the 19th century, people think, well, it's scattered all over the place. But as a matter of fact, there was a great deal of unity to the thought of the 19th century. And the unity comes from the fact that all of the eggheads of that century fell into one or another of two camps, idealists and positivists. Idealists and positivists. We find both tendencies among the modernists. I will tell you next time what idealism was and why it led to heterodoxy. I will tell you what positivism was and why it also led to heterodoxy. And the weird conditions on which at the end of the century those two philosophical movements were able to merge in a way that led to even more heterodoxy. So we will get into those details of the philosophical background next time. And I will leave you with this observation. The um, famous theoretician of media studies, Marshall McLuhan, was once invited to a liberal seminary in Canada to uh, give a talk that they thought would show McLuhan's admiration for all their new neo-modernistic ideas after Vatican II. And uh, Cluin was a pretty clever chap. He listened to what they were up to, and he said, I don't hear any 20th century ideas here. What? Well, we're so modern, we're so women, it hurts. No 20th century ideas? He said, no. Everything you're talking about is a 19th century idea. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that is how your imagination to this day, should picture modernism. All right? The modernists wanted to play with 19th century toys. They wanted to play with Hegel. They wanted to play with Kant. They wanted to play with various forms of positivism. Whole box of 19th century toys. Oh, what fun! And along came that grouchy Pius X and shut 
the lid of the toy box. Oh, they were mad. They were frustrated. Let's get back in the toy box. And then along comes certain post-conciliar tendencies and the lid comes up again. A major revival of 19th century ideas. So, don't think there's anything really modern about modernism. It's as 19th century as anything can be. But more of that when we meet again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshall. What ultimately happened to Marcel Hébert? Oh, good question. His secret publication fell into the hands of the Archbishop of Paris. Okay? He left it lying around in the wrong place. And then it was traced back to him. In fact, copies were found in his office at the school. Whereupon the bishop called him in and gave him an alternative. Either you retract this stuff or you resign. So he resigned. Yeah. He resigned and soon thereafter published a magazine article in a major French journal called The Last Idol, in which he repudiated the idea of a personal God. Okay? So... You see, I mean, when he talked about, I believe in the idea of God, he, he wasn't fooling. That's all that was left for him. Yeah, he ended up outside the church. Dr. Marshner, you had said that modernism was kind of a rehashing, not very modern, and it was a rehash of 18th century toys. What portion of modernism has its roots in the Lutheran or Protestant revolt, specifically Lutheran or Calvin? theology substantively nothing okay the protestant heresies were indeed heresies but they were about particular things they weren't about the meaning of dogmatic statements in general but you can say that methodologically the modernists inherited something important from the reformation namely the idea that one ought to go at the project of studying the Bible in complete independence of ecclesiastical tradition. You make of it what you can as a private believer, then you make of it what you can as a private scholar. The result of that is the development of an unbelieving, rationalistic literature of biblical criticism. And that became a very important contributor to the modernists. The foremost modernist in France, Alfred Loisy, was precisely a Bible exegete. But he didn't take many of his ideas from Catholic sources. Professor, I wonder if I might ask a question about um, this sort of larger tradition in which you had uh, Hébert working. N not larger in the sort of theological sense, but larger in the cultural sense. Within France, um, you sort of, we have much, if not all, of our, our sort of uh, deconstructionist theory and uh, critical theory and all the Roland Barthes of the world are, are, are all sort of from, from France. Is, is there a relationship in the way we deal with texts, or at least we do if we're subjected to that school of thought, um, that also goes back to this way of debasing the author, as it were? Well, that's a very good question. In a sense, yes, there are continuities between uh, modernism at the turn of the last century and the uh, post-critical and deconstructive stuff. What the two movements share is a peculiar idea of what language is about, what it does. For the post-modernist thinkers, quote-unquote, Language is all a collection of senses, and you put the senses of words together in whatever combinations suit your power interests or whatever, and then the literary critic deconstructs your text and finds out, you know, 
what nasty little power interest you're defending. And, and, and Well, the modernists, of course, also had the idea that language could be divorced from what it's obviously about. I believe in God is not a statement about the idea of God. God created heaven and earth. That is not about the idea of God. You can't change the referent of the word God without a, an absurd abuse of language. So that kind of abuse is important. Then there's something else that should be said. Okay. Has anybody here seen the Pirates of Penzance? Yes. Isn't there a point where the pirates are um, confronted with, I don't know, some line of poetry or something, and they all kneel down and sing, Hail Poetry! I forget exactly how that goes, but it's in there. All right? That was Gilbert and Sullivan's spoof on the characteristic of their time, which was to replace the holy with the beautiful. Okay? This feeds into the idea that we can dispense with the dogmas as long as we keep all the beautiful symbols. Okay? Including all the beautiful icons. We'll keep all that. Statues, Caravaggio paintings. We'll keep all that. And just throw out the dogmas. Because really, beauty is where it's at. Hail, poetry, mistress, divine. And in 1904, the classic expression of this position was published. It was by that creep Matthew Arnold, son of Thomas Arnold, who was only half bad. Matthew Arnold, the poet, Dover Beach, published a book called Literature and Dogma in which he's not against dogma as long as you include it as a part of literature because it's all just so beautiful. The idea of the holy is replaced by the idea of the sublime. This is why so many important 19th century people of wealth losing faith in their traditional denomination, went into art collecting and endowing museums. Because beauty is it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshall. Oh. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.